Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1224 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Thursday. And today's podcast will be myself and Wes Goldberg of the Locked on Heat podcast. Wes is a half of that show, along with David Ramil. They have a lot of fun talking about the Miami Heat, and uh, that's a good podcast to uh, sort of scout the enemy. If you are a Hawks fan in the midst of this series, of course, the Hawks, as I record this, are down 0-2 to Miami. But the series comes back to Atlanta on Friday, and the Hawks basically have a virtual must-win. Not all the way, because nothing's a must-win, so you actually get eliminated from a series. But if they were to be competitive in this series, they probably have to win on Friday. So we'll talk about that a little bit on the podcast today with myself and Wes, how the Hawks have struggled so far in this series, how Miami's been playing very well, including their offense, kind of getting over the hump on some stuff that I was questioning coming into the series in the half court and Jimmy Butler, et cetera. And at the end of the podcast, you hear Wes talk about some stuff about the Hawks future when he asked me a bunch of questions about how the Hawks roster might change if they were to lose this series, et cetera. So a lot of content coming your way on this show in crossover fashion. Programming note, probably the last podcast in between Game 2 and Game 3. Uh, and then we'll have a new show, as we always do, after Game 3. I'll be in the building, so a little bit, a little bit delayed probably on that episode Friday night into Saturday. But it will, it will be here on your podcast player. And the best way to find the podcast always is to subscribe on the platform of your choice, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, if you want to watch me on this particular video platform, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. Thank you for the support going on. All, all the way back to the regular season and also throughout this playoff run. And hopefully it'll be a long one for the Hawks into the offseason, etc. And without further delay, you'll hear the intro now. And then I'll be back with myself and Wes Goldberg talking about the Hawks and the Heat. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. All right, welcome to a special crossover episode of Locked On Heat and Locked On Hawks. I'm Wes Goldberg from Locked On Heat here with Brad Roland from Locked On Hawks. However you may be listening or tuning in on YouTube, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcast, thank you for making the Locked On Podcast Network your first listen every day. Let's just jump right into this series, uh, Brad. We're recording this uh, the day after the Heat beat the Hawks 115-105 to 105 to take a 2-0 series lead as the series goes back to Atlanta and not looking good for the Hawks right now uh we'll get into all of that uh what's impressed you with the heat we'll talk about uh Miami's um uh surging half court offense and then uh some other things later on but this series starts with Trey Young right everything that is going on in this series kind of starts and stops with Trey Young and right now uh Trey Young's stats uh, through two games, 16.5 points, 34.4% shooting, 11.8% from three-point range, which is not good, 5.5 assists, and eight turnovers a game. Now, a lot of the it's, – it's two games. Most of that is brought down by a really tough game one for him. Game two looked a little bit more reminiscent of Trey Young, but still below the all-NBA type player we saw um, in the regular season. So I want to ask you, like, what have you seen from the Hawks' perspective uh from Trey Young what is it is it more him is it is it in your opinion the heat limiting him I think it's really both I mean game one as I'm sure I know you guys talked about game one was just kind of a lost cause for the Hawks almost start to finish they kind of just never found anything that they wanted to see and Miami defensively I made the point on my show that I thought game one Miami was the single best defense that the Hawks have seen all year long. When you, when you, when you take into account the situation and the rotation Miami's playing their best guys and all that stuff on the road, et cetera. And they just had no 
second pitch, basically. It was basically, if Trey doesn't have it, that's been a criticism of the Hawks all year long, is if Trey doesn't have his A game, the Hawks are not always going to have the best options on offense. And I think that Trey's not played very well through two games. You mentioned it. He was a little bit better in game two, but at the same time, he had 10 turnovers in game two, which is a number that... I always kind of point this out. Like if you look at the turnover leader list in the NBA, it's all the best players in the league for the most part. So like <laughs> having turnover is not the biggest deal in the world, but you can't have 10, like you can't turn right. ball over 10 times. Um, and then three point shooting, like you said too. So he's not gotten comfortable. I think his decision-making has been a little bit jarred in this series and credit to Miami for some of that stuff as well. And the switching scheme has been a problem for the Hawks at times and Miami playing lineups that, you know, they're, they're playing really good defense, obviously. So, it's kind of a mixture of all those things put together, but certainly um, Trey's going to have to be better in this series. We can talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, through two games, he hasn't been good, and Miami is certainly at least partly responsible for that. Yeah, Trey Young, minus 23.1 points per 100 possessions in this series. Like, that, that's really bad. Like, the yeah. Hawks are not winning, and they've got no chance if that's the case. You mentioned the turnovers, and I had this game, I had this thought. I, I was at FTX Arena for game two, and, you know, there are so many possessions where Trey Young is just trying to get it to a big man on a roll or something like that. And you've got some Miami Heat player with, with arms and body and vertical and athleticism just sort of jumping into the passing lane and kind of creating these pick six type situations, right? And uh, it, it, you're right. You know, the best players in the league do turn the ball over, but not all turnovers are created equal, right? And so many of these, these turnovers for Atlanta are just – uh, leading into just easy buckets for the Heat, and and the whole thing with Miami is, hey, get them in the half court set, and and you're, that's really your only chance because in transition they're killers. And Atlanta's kind of just gifting them about. I don't, I shouldn't say gifting. That's not fair because I think that actually takes some credit away from Miami's defense because, like you said, it is sort of like the kryptonite version of a defense for the Hawks. Right? You've got one through five; they could switch everything. Like Atlanta wants to run all that high pick and roll. But Bam can survive on an island with Trey Young, and they're really happy with those defensive possessions when Bam and Trey Young are just out there on the perimeter. Like they're good with that. And and I don't really know what the Hawks uh, what the Hawks can do. Their half court offense has been a real problem. They were the number one half court offense in the NBA in the regular season. Now again, two games, small sample, but just goes to show like how the Heat have limited them. Ninety three point nine points per one hundred half court plays for cleaning the glass uh, in these two playoff games. That would go from first to 23rd in the league <laughs> in the regular season. That's behind Cleveland, Sacramento, Memphis, the Lakers. I think it's just a hair better than the Knicks half-court offense. Um, anything else you've noticed from Atlanta? Like, what can they do from now that the series is back at home for them? Is there anything that they can do to try to, to juice this half-court offense? Yeah, I think that having, I think we saw even a little bit in game two, having John Collins as a guy slipping screens who's a little bit more uh, experienced at navigating this kind of system was very helpful. Uh, they were better in game two, as much as those numbers are really awful, and they are, and they were still bad in game two, but game one versus game two was night and day. The Hawks at least had some threats in game two, particularly when Collins was out there. Trey was a little bit more comfortable. You talked about it, though, the the live ball turnovers. That's the thing about this Hawks team. As much as I picked on their defense this year, uh, that's been a problem in the series as well. Let's let's be clear about that. It's not only it's not only the offense, but the Hawks were number one in the NBA in turnover rate this year, and they turned the ball over 19 times in Game Two, and they they cannot afford that. The Hawks are not good enough other places to allow Miami, and particularly Miami with their transition offense that you reference, 
to do that. They cannot, they have to at least get shots up. If they miss them, they miss them. But the combination of bad ball security, bad three point shooting is basically untenable. Cause those, those are the two other than just the presence of Trey young individually, the Hawks are really good at two things on offense and it's turn it's, it's lack of turnovers and three point shooting. And if you do neither one of those things, they're kind of drawing dead basically. And part of that again is Miami's credit. But as far as like adjustments to make, it's not as simple as this, but they, they have to make threes in this series. That's for sure. Because yeah. especially as much as, uh, you know, Trey, if you have to a weakness of him, it might be attacking switches and, you know, he'll get, he'll, I think he'll get his at some point. He's going to have one big half, one big game, at least in this series at some point, I believe that, but Everybody else is so reliant on three-point shooting on this team. They don't have these guys that get to the rim a ton. Um, Bogdanovich, Herter, Hunter, all these guys are still primarily jump shooters more than anything else. And we saw it in the second half. Bogdanovich got loose, and it got a little bit tight in the second half. And that's going to have to happen again for the Hawks to sustain offense because it's not, it can't only be Trey. And if you go beyond Trey, it's basically maybe Collins at 80% and three-point shooting. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I didn't love the – I understand why Nate McMillan went – with John Collins, I didn't love the idea of pairing him with Danilo Gallinari in that front court. I get that, you know, after game one, Trey Young, Nate McMillan, they were all talking about, we got to increase spacing. All right, well, let's put our best two shooting big men out there together and let's increase the spacing. But like Gallinari was not good. He was 0 for 6 no. in game two, he, a big regression from his big game one performance. And I, I don't know if McMillan was sort of beholden because of the game one performance. I think everybody on planet earth knew like he wasn't going to do that again. Um, but it, <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have liked what I've seen from like the Trey young, John Collins plus DeLon Wright combos. Like you've gotten some really interesting looks out of that. Um, they were plus 12 in 10 and a half minutes almost um, in that last game. Uh and I, I, I like DeLon Wright for them. I think he was the only player that had a positive plus minus in game two for the Hawks. Yeah. He gives you a little bit more ball handling. Obviously, defensively, he's much he's much more physical than somebody like Herter is or even Bogdanovich, as uh, important as he was on offense. Like DeLon Wright in a, in a physical series where Miami is setting the tone by basically like Jimmy Butler strangling Trey Young in game <laughs> early in game one and just letting them know, hey, this is how this series is going to be played. DeLon Wright's kind of like the only Atlanta Hawk that's sort of up for it, right? Like, he's like, all right, I could do this. I could, I could play this kind of series. Where everybody else is shying away, I think John Collins could probably do it too if he wasn't still kind of dealing with the foot stuff um, that is that is really, like, clearly still bothering him. But um, I would go I – would, I would lean a lot more DeLon Wright. I would consider starting him if I were Nate McMillan. Yeah, I think it's not crazy. People are going to laugh if they're listening on, on my side is because I am probably the biggest DeLon Wright guy in the world. I am oh, good. extremely <laughs> pro DeLon Wright to the point where I get I get added on Twitter whenever he does anything good. Uh, but and yeah, I agree. I, I think especially with the way Gallo played in game two. And, you know, part of the problem right now is the lack of play Capella and Capella being out right. feeds down from top to bottom. You don't have another big. You're playing Collins basically through two games. He's only played center in this series and he's yeah. usually their primary power forward uh gallo etc and when they try to go small the hunter's got to play the four and he's one of their wings and then you kind of filter down from there they're playing smaller and yeah miami plays kind of small at times with jimmy butler at the four but jimmy butler as you well know is uh, not exactly a shy uh sort of frail individual he's very stocky and strong and physical so 
Yeah, the Hawks are not exactly built on toughness and physicality generally. Um, they have a lot of guys who I would char- characterize, not necessarily in a negative way, but as finesse guys. They're, they're shooters, they're perimeter-based. Gallo is a huge individual, but he's not this like bruiser either. So yeah, Delon Wright and John Collins are their kind of mix-it-up guys, and Wright is their best perimeter defender. So more time with him is uh, something that I'm never going to complain about ever, basically. We'll shift gears here, talk a little bit more about the Heat and, and what's impressed us so far through the series with them. But first, let's talk about our friends at BetOnline. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your betting stats and sports information. Find all of the latest sports developments, league reviews, and news, including this year's basketball playoffs and the start of the Major League Baseball season. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sport wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. Uh, taking a look at the odds this morning, uh, Brad, the Golden State Warriors, now the NBA favorites, now the betting favorites to win the championship this year. What do you think about that? Yeah, I noticed that. I think it might be a, a slight overreaction, but also the upside's pretty high for Golden State, so no, no complaints yeah. here, I guess. Good time to take Phoenix. You're getting a little yeah. bit better odds now. I know that Devin Booker sounds like he's going to miss a couple games here, but it's like I don't anticipate them losing to the Pelicans uh, in that series. They'll get Devin Booker back. I don't know. If you want, to, if you love the Suns, now is time to take those odds. <laughs> yeah. um, head to the website today. Use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and the action. Bet online where the game starts. Thank you for making the Locked On Podcast Network your first listen. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Now podcast. Nightly recaps of every NBA game with analysis from our local experts. Nobody does it like we do it on the Locked On Network. It's free. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Back here, I'm Wes Goldberg from Locked On Heat here with Brad Rowland from Locked On Hawks. Breaking down the first couple games of this series. And we talked about Atlanta, maybe some adjustments that they could make. Um, but it is, it might just be like window dressing adjustments at this point. I Do we see Atlanta coming back in this series and winning this series? No. I think that certainly you can't pick it. I mean, even the biggest, I should say that, most of the, even the biggest Hawks fans wouldn't say that they're going to come back and win this series. I think that is, they're not dead in the way that some might believe they are because we've seen them kind of turn it on and be kind of unstoppable for games at a time. We saw in the playoffs last year and that kind of gives you a a fine chance. But if you do the math, having to win four out of five against the number one seed is, it's, it's a tough ask for sure. Yeah, and and they the Heat look like the number one seed in the Eastern Conference right now. I, I think they have the best or the second best point differential in the Eastern Conference right now. Um, what has impressed me so much with the Miami Heat is just how they've imposed their will on this series. I think going into this series, it was it, that was the question, right? Would this be played more in Atlanta's kind of style, or would this be played more in Miami's style? And they. You know, we could talk about some of the the indicators. I keep talking about the key indicators, right? Like even in game two, a lot of them favored Atlanta. They had more possessions. Um, they had more three point attempts. Like all these things that you would, if you're in a if you're a Hawks fan, those are kind of the indicators that you want to see from that team. But like the Heat just had Jimmy Butler, and he dropped 45 points in game two, and he's been the best player on the floor. That's partly because, uh, well, he had a he had an awesome game, and he went like he he made four three pointers, which is completely out of character for him. And that the Heat have also been limiting Trey Young, um, and that's kind of the part that I wanted to get to here is when if you're the Heat and you could just throw so many layers of defense at Trey Young, and it starts with Gabe Vincent and Kyle Lowry and these guys at the point of attack. By the way, what have you thought about like Gabe Vincent and just his defense on Trey Young so far? Yeah, he was really good in particular in Game Two. I noticed him kind of popping off the screen and 
he's someone I've always thought is kind of underrated defensively. I know you guys probably properly rate him uh, having covered him and watching him all the time, but yeah, he definitely bothered him. And you mentioned it, like they have so many options against Trey that teams just don't have. And if you were trying to pick like a defensive matchup, that is probably the worst possible for Atlanta to face. It's probably this Miami team being able to switch and having all these options. So that's kind of part of the story right now. Yeah. Kind of getting the Lou Dort treatment right where the the ball handler in this instance Trey Young kind of crosses half court and immediately starts asking for somebody a teammate to set a screen so he can get a switch and he's like basically get this guy off me there's just nothing easy at all nothing easy at all yeah nothing easy and so um that's I've been impressed with that I've been I've been impressed with the three-point shooting and kind of zooming out on Miami right now um that's really important for them I think for the Heat their path to the finals is going to be a Jimmy Butler playing like he did or close to it in game two right being that apex predator type of wing and the best regular season three-point shooting team by percentage continuing to shoot well from distance in the playoffs, right? That's sort of how you even the playing field. If you're Miami, when you, when you talk about not having a guy of the caliber of a Jason Tatum or Giannis or Joel Embiid or Kevin Durant or one of these guys in the East, that's kind of how you do it. Um, I don't know. I, from what you've seen the first couple of games, and and maybe I guess what you thought about the Heat in the regular season, what do you think about their chances of coming out of the East? Yeah, I mean, I think they're dangerous. Uh, Heat fans got a little bit angry with me about my pre my pre series discussions about Miami, and it wasn't that I was doubting Miami overall. It's that I had the questions that a lot of people have about their yeah. offense in particular. Like their defense, I trust wholeheartedly. Really, it's just that at, at times they've been able to go a little stagnant, as we talked about earlier, even with the half court offense and. I will say, like you mentioned, if Jimmy Butler does what even 80% of what he did in game two, they're very difficult to beat because if Jimmy's making jump shots, it's right. kind of game over. <laughs> he doesn't always do that. But if when he does, like, good luck to the opposition. Um, in terms of putting it all together, like, they have enough options where it's very helpful. We saw some foul trouble stuff in game two that's not necessarily worrying long term, but it is a reminder of, like, what happens if they have some issues with Bam and or, P- and or P.J. Tucker if they can't play. Like, Devin was actually great. I'm actually a big Dwayne Devin guy. Mm-hmm. Um, back to his Atlanta days. But I do think that they have kind of the combinations that you would want. They have enough shooting. They have the guy who's the number one experienced guy in Jimmy. You have uh, you have Lowry making all the winning plays that he does and making everybody in Atlanta hate him already in the series, as you might imagine. Uh, and it's uh, it's just one of those – and Bam is, of course, Bam. So they have everything that you would want. My, my concern, I guess that something I flip up, uh, sort of turn back to you, I'm sure you talk about this all the time, is like do they have the lineups that you can kind of do both with? Like if they have to play Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, obviously Duncan's – uh, sorry, he was actually going to play a lot regardless. But if they have to play Duncan more for offense, like can they guard in those groups when they can't necessarily get away with it? Because the Hawks are pretty bad defensively, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. If Miami has to go more offense, can they can their defense hold up in the same fashion? It's kind of like those five man units. Do they? I mean, they, they certainly have one or two, but do they have the balance mm-hmm. when everybody has to play more minutes when it's not quite as easy on offense? I thought it was pretty telling last night when uh, Duncan Robinson off the bench. Uh, 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 has two quick fouls in seven minutes, and Eric Spolstra was just quick with that rope. He was just like, nope, yep. this ain't your game, man. And he just took him out, and Duncan Robinson just didn't play again. He played seven minutes. He picked up two fouls in those seven minutes, and that was it. After he was uh, incredible in game one, too. That's that's the crazy yeah. thing. That's something about, about Spolstra. Is like he's willing to do that because a lot of coaches, after they watch Duncan in game one, are not going to play him seven minutes in game two no matter what. It's just right. what it is. I mean, we literally we kind of saw this, the the same version of that, right, with Nate McMillan playing Danilo Gallinari down the stretch when, 
you know, I, I didn't even say this stat in the first segment, but Collins and Gallo together were, were outscored by nine points in their time together. Like, that's bad. That's very bad in the short amount of time that they played together. And, uh, um, yeah, you you get to have that when you're Eric Spolstra and you're the second longest tenured coach in the league and you have the resume that he has. Like, that's kind of part of, of coaching is that if you, if you kind of have that autonomy to do those kinds of things and make those decisions. Also, part of it, too, is like, Caleb Martin didn't play any real minutes. He played in garbage time in game one, didn't play any meaningful minutes. Uh, but in game two, Spo went to him early when Duncan Robinson got into foul trouble and then Bam and PJ Tucker got into foul trouble. So he's just started playing Caleb Martin and he played a bunch of important minutes for them um, when he didn't play any important minutes in game one. We still haven't seen Victor Oladipo. Like there are guys that uh, Spo can go to. Uh, they, they just, they're so deep. They have so many options here. They have so many different ver- ways that they can play. Um, a lot of different lineup options. One thing that I did want to talk about is kind of the trend line of this half-court offense because this has sort of been the Achilles heel for the Heat all year long. For most of the season, they were just at league average as far as half-court offense. And as we know in the playoffs, things tend to slow down. You need to be able to generate points in the half-court setting. You need to get good shots. And the Heat had a hard time with that, but... Once the Heat sort of revamped their rotation after that four-game skid that was headlined by the sideline kerfuffle thing <laughs> and all the, and everything that happened there, like they they completely scrapped the rotation and rebuilt it around the the central premise of getting Jimmy Butler in space. And Jimmy Butler plays more minutes at the four now with three shooters instead of two shooters. Um, it's Kyle Lowry, Tyler Hero, Max Drews, or Duncan Robinson, or Gabe Vincent out there. Sometimes Caleb Martin, depending on the matchup and. Uh, Miami's half-court offense has basically taken off. Uh, over the final seven games of the regular season, the Heat had the second-best half-court offense in the league. They were scoring 110.8 points per 100 half-court plays, which would have been far and away the best half-court offense. Again, small sample, but we're talking about trend lines here. And in the playoffs, it's been much of the same. They've, they've been scoring 109.6 points per 100 half-court plays. So right there uh, with what they finished the regular season as, um, I... I I don't anticipate them scoring at like historic levels in the half court going like when they, when they start playing tougher defenses as the playoffs go on, but that's a good trend, right? Like that's a good sign. If you're Miami is playing Jimmy Butler, kind of the way that the, the heat used uh, LeBron when they had him, the way that Milwaukee likes to use Giannis in a lot of cases, uh, it's sort of just put Jimmy Butler at the four, surround him with shooting and let him go to work. And in game two against Atlanta, like there were so many possessions where it was just Jimmy Butler in the middle of the floor getting to do whatever he wanted to do, dribble, spin, put an elbow into some poor Atlanta Hawks chest. Like he was just able to do it all. Yeah. The theory of that really makes a lot of sense, especially um, when you just see what Jimmy's been able to do with space around him. And I will stress that, you know, this is not the most difficult matchup for the theory of that. The Hawks are perhaps the worst defensive team in the playoffs. If you look at their numbers from this season, especially without Capella. So like, I'll be interested to see if they win the series as, as, as expected at this point, if Miami can continue this in the next round, because if we're just, again, I'm not trying to pick on the Hawks, but like beyond DeAndre Hunter, they don't really have any options to guard Butler. We saw that right. they went to TLC, they went to Bogdanovich. They, they, they had no chance against Jimmy Butler in space. So like credit to Miami for taking advantage of that. But also at the same time, I don't know what that actually tells you long-term. It certainly is not a bad sign. And you, mm-hmm. you, you, you know what better than I do about their pre series production but uh, I guess the question would be, like, can they also hold up defensively when you do that? And especially if you're playing, like, Hero Robinson together and all those questions yeah. that everybody else has. They're good questions. Depending on what happens, I mean, 
I, I fully expect the Heat to get through the series, whether it's four games, five games, whatever it is. Um, I don't know who they're going to play in the second round. Right now, it looks like Philly. We'll see what happens when the series goes back to Toronto. Uh, but those are much more different matchups. Let's put it that way. Very different, yes. And then <laughs> the Atlanta, what the Atlanta defense presents for for the Heat's offense. So we'll see. Um, coming up next, though. If this is the end of the season for the Hawks, what happens this offseason for Atlanta? It could be a really interesting offseason for them. Uh, but first, today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is truly a standout among protein bars with its exceptional nutritional profile and so many delicious flavors. Built Bar is the favorite protein bar of many discerning fitness trainers and fitness enthusiasts alike. All Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate, taste better than your current protein bar, and are perfect for an after-workout snack or some needed energy in the middle of a busy day. Built Bars are low in calories and carbs. They're high in fiber. They're packed with protein. Check out these macros. Most Built Bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. If you compare that to most protein bars, Built Bars are a clear winner. Plus, they come in great flavors such as mint brownie, raspberry, salted caramel, cookies and cream, and more. And they have delicious new flavors coming out all the time, so check out Built.com often. And if you haven't tried the Puffs, then you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best-tasting products. Puffs are the first-ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're covered in 100% real chocolate, and they come in churro, coconut marshmallow, banana, cream pie, and other flavors. So here's the offer. Go to Built.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, and get 15% off on your order. Again, use the promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. All right. Back here with a Locked on Heat, Locked on Hawks crossover. I'm Wes Goldberg from Locked on Heat here with Brad Roland of Locked on Hawks. Make sure to subscribe to each show wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. All right. So if this is the end of the road for the Hawks this season, what do you where do you think that leaves them going into the offseason? Because this is a team that made the Eastern Conference Finals last year. You don't want to overreact to one playoff run in the way that a lot of teams do the way when they do have playoff runs like that, and then they kind of have an early out the following year. But then again, Trey Young's that dude, right? Like he's that guy. Like you could build around him. He's and right now it just doesn't really seem like Atlanta's ceiling is where it wants to be, right? And so, what do you think the Hawks can do this offseason? Yeah, I'm, you know, as you well know, covering a team, like I'm, I'm, I've been trying to kind of avoid this as much as possible just because <laughs> the season's not over yet. And like, it's just difficult to do the dance of like, what do you talk about in the middle of a season? But right. offline, this, this happens, this conversation happens, happens all the time. And it's like, okay, are the Hawks going to run it back again? Basically, is the broad question because after their conference finals run last year, they basically ran it back. There were tweaks on the margins, but all of the core guys came back. They paid Kevin Herter. They paid John Collins, and they just basically pressed the button like, all right, let's just do this again. Hope for, hope for internal internal improvement, and we'll do this again. And, you know, with, of course, some hiccups along the way, like they just weren't as good this season in the regular season and now so far through two games anyway in the playoffs. And part of that's injuries. Capella's been out, all that stuff. But I find it hard to believe that this front office and this owner in particular are going to be like, okay, let's just run it back again after what happened this year. Like Travis Schlank mm-hmm. kind of made some national, made the comments made, made the rounds nationally about like, should I pay all of these guys? And he said that on the on the record on the radio, like early in the season. I'm sure you even heard it. It I became did. national news, and like that was months ago. And granted, they played better than that down the stretch, but like I'm sure that hasn't left his mind. I'm sure he's questioning whether he should have made some changes in the last off season. So. Uh, if they were to go out quietly in this in this first round series, as many expect, I just I don't know what it's going to be, 
But I do think that there'll be some urgency to shake it up a little bit. Because you mentioned having Trey Young speed you up. Whether you want that to happen or not, having a guy who's a top 15, 10, how do you want to say that player in the NBA, he's going to put some pressure on you internally. And also, yeah. expectations are pretty high. So my only, my my sort of broad, broader take is like someone in the top seven or eight isn't going to be there anymore. I don't know who it's going to be. It won't be Trey. Trey's going to be around. Don't we, don't, <laughs> don't fear. But I would say basically anybody else is available based on right. what you hear. So like some shakeups coming. I just don't know how big of one, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully it's better than the Cam Reddish for Kevin Knox exchange. Um, that, that was a uh, Reddish for a first round pick exchange. I want to be, uh, it's very funny because like, and you see that now, like Cam didn't even play in New York and kind of got a, right. a, a little bit of a feeling of why that happened. Uh, he wanted out and that's okay. But yeah, it, that's a, that's a deal that's like kind of hard to sell in the middle of the season. It's one of those right. trades that you have to make because you have to make it. But like he made sure Travis did on the record. It was like, like, look, uh, we're trying for, for a pick. It's not really about Kevin, unfortunately. Uh, he's fine, but uh, they wanted to look for the future. But listen, yeah. I mean, they have a lot of questions to answer. As much as that's crazy for a team that was in the conference finals less than 12 months ago, there are some questions, let's just yeah. say. Uh, I, look, Trey Young had a better had a career year, right? And he was, awesome. I, he was he's the reason why the Hawks are in the playoffs. There's no doubt about it. And, and you know, he's the superstar. Uh, if they go out in the first round the way that it looks like it's going to happen, then uh, he's going to get a lot of blame, right? Like, it's that's just the way it is when you're the superstar. But he shouldn't. It's not his fault. He's doing everything he can. Uh, you just, like, the Hawks did not get the, the, the leap from guys like Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, um, even like, uh, Clint Capella had a down year defensively. John Collins got hurt at the end of the season. Like there's a bunch of stuff that, that hurt them. Um, I think you're, I, I like a, a Kongu a lot. I just still, you're, you're still kind of waiting for that leap to really happen with him. Like none of these other guys around Trey have kind of taken that next step forward. And so it is an interesting question is, okay, do we wait? Because we're still young and there's still a bunch of guys with a ton of potential here, or have we seen enough or, is Trey Young just so good that it doesn't really matter if they have potential because we need to we can't wait for it. We gotta go compete right away. It's it's such an interesting place for them to be. It's still a roster that's kind of ripe for a two for one or a three for one deal. Those are so much easier said than done, though. It's like, all right, who are you I'm trading? Glad, for? I'm glad you said that because that's been even going back to last year, it's like, okay, consolidation trade. It's like, all right, who's the guy that they're going to get? Yeah. I mean, they're on one hand, I think the Hawks are actually underplayed nationally as a potential like star wants to go somewhere else destination because mm -hmm. they have all those pieces to trade, but that guy has to actually be available and actually has to fit on the roster. Right. So it's interesting. Like, and if you go player for player, this is not as easy as this, but like other than Trey, how many guys on this roster overachieved this year? Zero. Basically zero. I mean, yeah. you could start some some guys maybe reach their normal level or, or maybe right. around their normal level, but nobody was like above their level this year. Right. And that's tough. I mean, somebody's got to have to overplay. And like guys like Hunter in particular was a pretty big disappointment this year overall. He was not very good. And he's, a, he's, he's the guy they pushed the chips in for. He, they right. traded three picks and other stuff. And that's the guy they can't afford to miss on. I'm not saying they missed so far, but it's not happened yet. Kongwu, Capella was pretty good down the stretch. I thought he was pretty awesome actually down the stretch, but early yeah. in the season wasn't quite himself. So yeah, they have some uh, some big picture questions in terms of like, do you push it in for somebody? And also some like on the margins questions about like, can you play around Trey Young without like elite defensive talent? Because we saw even with Capella on the roster and Collins, the guys who are pretty good defenders, they were 27th in defense. Like you mm -hmm. can't win at 27th in defense ever really. No, I mean, look, it's not rocket science how to build around Trey Young. 
four good defenders around Trey Young. Period. That's how you play. Like that's they're, and they're trying. That's that's what they've been trying to do. And that's exactly. what you saw. You saw the investment. Like they spent that whole that whole draft on DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish right. for a reason. That, that, right. that was the theory around like all right, defense first, wings around Trey. Yeah. And those you know Reddish is already gone, and Hunter's been a little bit below the level so far. So that 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 hurts them. And then you throw right. in everything else. And that's and that's why it's sort of hard to make these deals. If you kind of, it's really hard to trade the theoretical three and D guy for the actual three and D guy, right? Like, there's just not a whole lot of trades like that out there. But that's really what they need to do. Like, I don't. Well, if you were in Atlanta, you you would would hear people asking uh, if they should trade for for Donovan Mitchell, which does not solve any of their problems. But he's a big name and he's very good at basketball. So there you go. Hey, I mean, they would score 150 points a game. Why? That's the thing. 160. People get mad at me. I'm like, I'm not picking on Donovan Mitchell. He's really good, but yeah. that's not the guy that I, I would draw up in a lab to play with Trey Young on this no. team. So that's all that is. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, uh, we got two more games in this series, maybe three. We'll see what happens. I'll take the over on two. I will say on the record, I think the Hawks are going to win one of these games at home, at least one of these games. Like They've been so good at home. Trey's going to have a 40-piece at some point. I think the okay. math would tell you the Hawks win one. Uh, it's not impossible that, that they get swept, but uh, I will take the over four and a half. Wes. All right. I'll go under. I like the sweep here. I think we're going to get maybe one first round sweep. And I think it's, I, I just, I don't know what changes. You might be right. I'm not saying court. you're going to be definitely no, wrong. I, I just say, I, I think they get at least one. I'm on the record about that. Right. I'm often framed as being too negative about the Hawks. I'm not doing it this time. <laughs> there it goes. They get at least one. It, it's a good sign for for Hawks fans when being positive about the Hawks is yeah we'll get one game this series. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean I I try to leave the door open as much as possible and I was too low on the Heat. I will say that now after two games I was too low on the Heat in this series. Even if the Hawks were to come back and win this series, I think I was probably still still too low on my end coming in. So all right, well, we make, got make you. Up to all the Heat fans. We got you <laughs> on our side, Brad. Uh, that'll do it for us today. Remember to like and subscribe. Locked on Heat and Locked on Hawks on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, comment and leave a five-star rating. Uh, Follow us on Twitter. Thank you for making Locked On Heat and Locked On Hawks your first listen every day. Make your second listen the Locked On NBA podcast. Locked On experts covering the biggest stories around the NBA every Monday through Friday in less than 30 minutes. It's free. It's available wherever you get your podcasts.